I'm going to carry on with our Ephesians series, and I want to start just with a story. I don't, I don't know if all of you guys remember last year, there was a moment where um, a Facebook page called The Joe Burger kind of blew up. Uh, they started uh, posting some posts that really seemed to resonate with a whole lot of South Africans, and these things seemed to be shared and really, really went viral. And Lawrence van Niekerk, who runs the blog, said his aim with these posts was really that he wanted to bring people together. He said he'd seen a whole lot of racism in South Africa and experienced a whole lot of different racist incidents. And what he wanted to do is to try something to bring different people together. He realized this was death or glory. You know, this was going to go up in like flames or be really, really successful. And he decided he was going to start to post some of these questions up on Facebook and see the replies that he got from people. And the responses were overwhelmingly positive. And I'm sure you've seen them, you've spoken about them, you saw them either on TV or heard about it on the radio. But there was an amazing response from South Africans. And it all started with a post that simply read, Okay, black people, ask white people one question you've always wanted to know, with a little laughy face emoji at the end to try and set the tone a bit. It got 18,000 comments, a whole lot of likes, a whole lot of loves. And I want to share just a few of those things from you. Some of them you might have heard before, some maybe you haven't. You can go and check out the rest later. Do also just want to say, obviously, doesn't necessarily endorse these posts, but I think it's a good bit of fun just going through them together. Number one, why do white South Africans get so excited when Sweet Caroline plays? You guys know that song? Sweet Caroline. Well, I don't know. I've never heard it before. But 4,000 likes on that post. And then Bongani Mapu chipped in and commented, I'm not going to lie, that song is bomb. No wonder white folks are always happy. How can you be angry listening to Sweet Caroline on your way to work? Someone named Marley posted, What's up with your love for the aircon? Even in winter, you all have the aircon on full blast. Got me feeling like I'm in a shopping aisle at Woolies, but I'm in the office. Someone named Nana said, Dear white people, why do you buy clothes for your dogs? You know that the fur is meant to keep them warm, right? And they are not really minted. Pitzel Mokwena said, What is up with you guys and in color cutter? We forgot about that song over a decade ago, but it's still an anthem among the white community. Wow. And maybe fifthly, Keegan Thunderbolt, how can you pronounce names like Dostoevsky and McConaughey, but a simple Tsepo is hard to pronounce? So true, eh? I really hope I pronounced that right. That was a really wonderful thing. And then there were a lot of comments from other people about these things that we shared. I just thought these were two really positive ones. Someone named Nontlakaniko said, I honestly like white people a whole lot better after reading this. We get so caught up with the elephant in the room whenever we are around each other, and we never get to discover any of our lighter sides. And someone named Sapiso said, I really, really love this trend of trying to unite each other. There's no mudslinging here, just a beautiful exchange of culture and context. Love it. Mandela would be proud. I just thought those are incredible. You know, you can go and read through them a little bit later. I hope you're on the same page as me and sharing that. But the reality is there is so much beauty about our country, but at the same time there is so much racism and prejudice and injustice and discrimination at exactly the same time. It's um, here in Durban, it's in South Africa, and sadly it's in our hearts and in our churches too. This morning we want to take a bit of a look at what God has to say about all of these things. And in an ancient multicultural city like Ephesus, they were having the same struggles and the same problems 2,000 years ago. And Paul writes this letter to the church in Ephesus, and he speaks to them about this, and he applies the gospel to these issues. 
So this morning we're going to read a bit of a longer chunk from Ephesians 2.11 to Ephesians 3 verse 6. So bear with me. This is potent and powerful and is so relevant for us here in Durban today. And it says this. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to you who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens of the saints and members of the household or family of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And in chapter 3, For this reason I call a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And finally, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You got all of that? Good. The first word that that all starts with is the word therefore. Therefore. And what Paul is wanting to do, starting this all off, is he's going to speak about prejudice, racism, and discrimination, and apply the gospel to it. But what we've been seeing is so far, he has been laying this foundation of the gospel. Over the last four or five weeks, however it's, uh, long it's been, he's been pointing us to who we are in Jesus, and who Jesus is, and what Jesus has done for us. So he's laid that foundation of the gospel for the church so that we would know it, and now he's wanting to build on that, to apply that to our lives, and to apply that to racism, discrimination, and prejudice. And I think there's something really important to look at here. If I can just do a pastoral aside before we carry on. I think like one of the things I see chatting to a lot of you and just to other people like in South Africa and people who live around the world is that our world is getting more and more crazy, you know? I think the reality is with the internet and with our phones, we are getting bombarded with all sorts of messages and news all of the time, you know, whether it's blogs or emails or on Twitter or Instagram or whatever it is, we're just getting bombarded with information. We're getting bombarded with events that are going on. We're getting bombarded with new ideas, politics, uh, social change, cultural change, and our culture is changing faster than it ever has before. And I think for so many people, we just don't know what to do. You know? It just feels a bit overwhelming, trying to keep up with everything, trying to know what we're meant to believe and what we're meant to do in light of that. And for Christians, for us to know how, how we live as followers of Jesus today, and what we're meant to believe, and how our culture is changing, and how we're meant to respond to that, I think it's quite an overwhelming thing for so many people. And what Paul is doing here is he's actually giving us a masterclass. He starts off and he's showing us the big idea of the gospel. This is the core or center of our faith. 
and he's built this foundation of the gospel for so long, and now he's going to apply it to this crazy situation that is going on in the city and in the church. He's showing us how to apply the gospel. And the reality is, is if we know this message, if we know who Christ is, if we know what he's done for us, if we know who we are in light of what he's done, if we know about what it means to be the people of God, the church that Jesus is building, and if we get an idea of what the mission is that he's called us to, then no matter what we face, no matter what changes in culture and in society, no matter what is going on in Durban, we can look at that through the lenses of the gospel and know what it looks like to follow Jesus in Durban in 2018. If we get the gospel, we can understand everything else that is going on in light of that. But back to Ephesians 2. Here in verse 11 and 12, Paul is talking into some really complex, hostile, deep rivalry between the Jews and Gentiles. And he even shares these two kind of slang nicknames that they've got going. But the uncircumcision and the circumcision. Seems like that was quite a big thing back in the day. And this rivalry between these two groups was religious, you know. The Jews and the Gentiles didn't worship the same God. Secondly, it was cultural. The Jews had these rituals and feasts and celebrations that were going on that made them distinct from every other nation in the whole of the world. The third was this was a social thing. The Gentiles were seen as foreigners and outsiders of the nation of Israel. And lastly, this was a racial thing. The Jews could boast because they had the blood of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob flowing through their veins, and the Gentiles didn't. And this hatred between the Jews and Gentiles had been going on for generations. This wasn't like a new thing that had just sprung up overnight. This was something that had been ingrained in young Jews and young Gentiles for many, many centuries. And we can see that in some examples. Imagine being a little boy or a little girl growing up in a home where your dad would pray every day and thank God that he hadn't made them a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Imagine as a little girl, that's what you heard your dad praying every single day. Imagine that, what that would make you think about what it means to be a woman or the value of men. Or imagine being a little boy growing up in that kind of home. How you would see yourself as a man, how you would see Gentiles, how you would see slaves, how you would see others. And this was a prayer that most Jewish men prayed every single day. One Jewish rabbi of the time used to teach that the only reason that God created Gentiles was to fuel the fires of hell. So we asked him to come and preach next week. We thought it would be a hooch, you know? <laughs> I share those two examples because every single one of us has been socialized. You know, we've grown up in a family, we've grown up in an environment, we've grown up in a culture that has shaped us over years and years and years and years, and we don't even realize that it's going on. We've all been formed by these things that shape how we see others shape how we see ourselves, and shape how we see one another. And I want you to think about this just for a second. When you were growing up, who were your heroes? You know, racially, culturally, spiritually, socially. Who were the people that you idolized, the people that you looked up to? And then who were the people you demonized? Who were the enemies? Who were the bad guys? Who were the people that you felt safe with? Who were the people you were taught to fear? Who were the insiders and the outsiders for you growing up? And on top of that, which group were you in? Because this is exactly what Paul is speaking about, yeah? And he's speaking particularly about the Jews, the insiders, and the Gentiles, the outsiders. But maybe for you, you grew up in a situation where you were one of the outsiders. You felt rejected, you looked down upon, you felt like people didn't invite you to certain things, you feel like the circle was closed off to you. Or maybe you feel like you were in the other group. You feel like you were the powerful. You were the one who cut others out. You were the one who looked down on others or made others feel inferior. The reality is those are the two groups Paul's speaking about here 
But probably for all of us in this room, we've been in both. You know, probably for all of us, we've been in a place of power at times, and at other times, we felt powerless and kind of inferior. And sadly, what the gospel does, or the hope of the book of Ephesians, is that Christ is bringing both groups together inside of him and making us one. That's the story of what Paul is saying here. He's bringing both groups, the insiders and the outsiders, together in Christ, and he's making them into a family. He's redeeming them and bringing us together. So that's what the gospel does. That's what should be happening inside of the church. But sadly, so often the voice of culture and the voice of the world around us is shaping us so much more strongly than the gospel. In Galatians chapter 2, we see that this discrimination and prejudice and, I guess, racism has even gotten into the heart of Peter, the one who was leading the apostles at that time. And the passage says this, Galatians 2, 11 to 14. But when Cephas or Peter came to Antioch, our Paul opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party of the Jews. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. And the reason Paul's writing this is Barnabas was his mentor. Barnabas was the guy who took him under his wing when no one else would, you know. Paul became a follower of Jesus. He'd been this radical Pharisee, killing Christians. Christians were scared of him, but Barnabas came and took Paul under his wing and cared for him. And now it's like he's watching his hero led astray. And his hero has become a hypocrite in front of his eyes. Paul's devastated about this. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? When Paul comes to this church in Antioch, he finds a church that is segregated. He finds a church where the Jews separate from the Gentiles and they spend time apart. And one of the things Paul does is he doesn't mollycoddle Peter, you know? He doesn't go, Peter, shish, this reconciliation stuff is so tough, you know, so complex. Just going to give you a pass. I'm not going to say anything about it. He actually stands up in front of everyone and he addresses this very public sin. He says, this is not okay. This is not in step with the gospel. This is wrong. Something needs to happen because he expects that Peter would be leading in reconciliation. He expects that Peter would be bringing gospel redemption to play in this community of people, not actually setting a terrible example of separating people. And what Paul is trying to say here is that there's a social problem at the church in Antioch. There's a horizontal problem. There's an issue between the people of segregation and racism. But what Paul says is this isn't just a horizontal problem. This is a vertical problem. See, if you look at the horizontal, you can see what's going on in the vertical. And where there's sin horizontally, where there's sin in our relationships, it shows that there's something wrong with our relationship with God. Paul says that we're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. There's a vertical problem. And sadly, this isn't just a Galatians 2 problem. I really wish in the history of the church, this was the only time that there was an issue with racism, prejudice, and injustice in the church. But sadly, it's happened many, many times. And the history of Christianity and racism in South Africa is sadly really, really intertwined. I got some of these facts and statistics from Ryan Savile. He's a pastor at Jubilee Church in Cape Town. But this is the history of our country with racism and the gospel. 1488, Bartholomew Dias arrives, and he fights with the Khoikhoi, and then immediately he plants a wooden cross in Ogoa. <coughs> a few years later, 1497, Vasco da Gama landed in St. Helena Bay, 
and there's another violent crash, a clash for the Khoi Khoi people. And then he sails further to Musselburgh, where he plants a cross in the soil and then builds a chapel in 1501. And in 1652, Jan van Riebeck arrives and immediately makes two requests. The first is a request for slaves, and the second is a request that they would pray, this prayer, uh, in their council meetings. A prayer for true reformed Christian doctrine should be spread among these wild and insolent people. Then in 1806, the British, which is my people, my mom was born in the UK, my dad grew up in the UK, his parents, my grandparents and great-grandparents are from Europe. In 1806, the British occupied the Cape. And at that time in the Cape, there were 9,300 slaves and 6,400 free inhabitants of the state. Slavery was deeply intertwined with Christianity, and as slaves came into town, they would be given new Christian names, like Moses and Daniels and Abrahams. A percentage of slaves would even be tithed to the church, which just seems crazy to us now. Imagine little boys being torn from their mother's hands to be taken to church, to be tithed as property, to be owned by the people of God. This is the context that evangelical Christianity grew up in South Africa. This is the kind of movement that we were a part of. This is the story that was part of our, I guess, genesis and formation. Just like Peter in Galatians 2, preaching the gospel, but at the same time being more shaped by the culture around him, and the spirit of the age and the message of Jesus. Slavery ends in the 19th century in South Africa, but in the 20th century, a bunch of NKK missionaries start to perfect the doctrines of apartheid. And then it's a former minister or priest turned politician, D.F. Milan, that implements apartheid. That's the story of the church and racism in our country. I think, like, as a white, privileged male, preaching this message today, it just feels so awkward and uncomfortable to me, you know? This is something I would rather not do, this is something I've wrestled with. I think growing up in the white, leafy suburbs of Kloof, and then moving down to Durban, I've been so challenged by the realities of the diversity and beauty of our city, coming from a very different background. Realizing that my upbringing and my story is very different from the stories of most people in our nation. And honestly, over the last five years, one of the things I've wrestled with as a pastor in the city should I be leading this church? Is the fact that I'm white, is the fact that I come from privilege, is my story actually a hindrance to the gospel in Durban? Is it a hindrance to the growth of this church or not? And I've spoken to people about that because it's been a real issue that has convicted me and challenged me. But the reality is that God has put me in this church to lead this community at such a time, and he's put you here too. And part of the reason he has done that is so that we won't just speak the gospel in word, but that we will embody it and live it out and be. One of the things we have an opportunity to do as a church is to represent the power of the gospel to transform people and transform relationships and to show how God can do that even in a complex social and cultural situation like we have in Durban and South Africa. In 2007, I went to the USA for the first time. I had this moment where I was walking down the streets of Manhattan, and I saw this wall. Um, actually, Rowan, can you put it up? Beautiful little um, graffiti wall. Don't you think that looks cool? And I remember seeing this wall and seeing people looking at it and thinking to myself, a bit random, you know? I don't know why they put that wall in the middle of nowhere. And then last year, I was in Cape Town. I was in a place called um, St. George's Mall, and I saw this second wall. I don't know if any of you guys have seen it before. But I looked at these two things, and I thought to myself, why are they there? 
And both of these pieces of wall come from the Berlin Wall in Germany. It separated East and West Berlin. It separated Eastern and Western Germany from 1961 to 1989, 28 years. The wall was 156.4 kilometers long, and it circled all the way around West Berlin. And actually, it wasn't just one wall. It was two walls, the Eastern and Western Wall, which separated these two areas. And between them was this uh, piece of land called the Death Strip. Can you put that up? That's a piece of land where literally hundreds of people died trying to escape from one part of the country to the other. And the Berlin Wall obviously physically divided Germany, but it also ideologically divided Germany and divided these ideas which were going between them. And when this wall was destroyed, 65 planes, 175 trucks, and 13 bulldozers were used to remove the wall. And today, pieces of that wall have been bought and sold and moved to every continent on the face of the world. I had to think, why? Why move this piece of wall all the way to New York, all the way to Cape Town, all the way to these other major cities, you know? Think of the time, the effort, the energy that goes into moving these things that weigh tons to be on display in other parts of the world. Obviously not because of what the wall physically represented. It's got to be because of what the wall symbolically represented. It represented the division of two ideologies which were shaping the world at that time. And while many people in Berlin wanted the wall to fall, even more people wanted a piece of the wall once it came down, because it signified democracy, civil courage, and the end, like the West's victory over fascism. That's why people have spent millions and millions of rand to purchase this and gone to all the inconvenience of taking it to different parts of the world. Now the reality is that South Africa never had a physical war like that, dividing people. But there was another war, the war of apartheid, which separated people for many, many years, far, far longer than the 28 years we're speaking about there. And even though that war was torn down decades ago, at the same time, it still feels like there's this invisible war separating people geographically, culturally, socially, economically, and even spiritually. That war of apartheid to this day shapes our stories and our interaction with Christianity. But there is hope. And Paul writes in Ephesians 2, verse 13 to 16, but now in Christ Jesus. After all of the water that's gone under the bridge, after all of the years, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and get this, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's broken down the dividing wall of hatred, the dividing wall of <coughs> racism or prejudice, of every kind of evil that was separating people. He has broken it down on the cross by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Christ has made us one. Christ has broken down the wall of hostility that separates groups of people. So that now, Paul can say, the hope is that Jew and Gentile can now come together from the place of division that they had to be one new humanity inside of him. And for us in Durban, black, white, Indian, colored, Afrikaans, English, Sutu, Khoza, Shona, whatever language you speak, for us male and female, old and young, South Africans, foreign nationals, educated and uneducated, rich and poor, powerful and powerless, cool and uncool, whichever categories you fit into. 
Jesus is saying the same. He has broken down the wall of division that keeps us separate. He's broken down the wall of hostility and hatred to make one new humanity in himself, one new family, one new people called the church. That's what Jesus is at work doing. And guys, the dream of Jesus isn't just to have a diverse group of people in one room together. If that was the dream, thanks Tabitha. If that was the dream, then movie theaters are really successful at that. If that was the dream, then shopping centers and shops are really successful at that. The dream isn't to get a diverse group of people into a room. Jesus says the dream here is to make a diverse group of people into a family. That's what Jesus is at work doing. And we get this incredible picture of what is to come. Revelation 7, verse 9 to 10. It's John the Apostle, and he's writing about what he sees. He has this revelation or this vision of what is to come. And he says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And this is a picture of what is to come when Jesus returns. At that moment in time, the dividing walls of racism and ageism and classism and sexism and everything else that separates will be torn down and destroyed. And I want you to picture it for a second. Just try and close your eyes if you want. Picture the throne of God at the center of everyone and just this mass of people mixed and, I don't know, muddled up together. Imagine the clothes that people are wearing, the different outfits, the different colors. Imagine the different accents you would hear, the different dancing, the different singing. Imagine this is people from every point of time, from every nation in the world, coming together at one point to worship Jesus together. That is the future that we look forward to one day when Jesus returns. And the gospel wants to begin to shape that picture of what is to come in this church and through us into Durban today. We get the opportunity privilege of giving this preview and foretaste of what will happen in Revelation 7, of what is to happen one day when all of the things that divide us are crushed and there's this beautiful redemption going on among the people of God. And for us as the church, we need to work backwards from Revelation 7, work backwards from what we see and think, how does this impact how we live now? How does this impact what we do now? Because on the cross, Jesus killed the hatred. It says he killed the hostility. He slew the hatred that separates us so that we could be made one new man in him. And in our, uh, our relationships, in our congregation, in our conversations, in what we do with our time, he is calling us now to present this picture of what the gospel can do in power through our lives. The reality is that South Africa has need of this kind of powerful gospel bringing people together. And that as Jesus says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That we as a group of people could be transformed to live this out in our lives and to represent it to Durban and to the world through what God does here and what he does inside of us. And I ask you to stand and we'll pray together. If you don't mind closing your eyes, that's one of the things we try and do here is to focus on Jesus as we respond. But I just thought as we as we end in worship, before we go out to the pool, before we see people take the next step with Jesus, 
I want to give you four questions just to consider as we respond to him. Firstly, do you need to repent of any racism or prejudice or discrimination that is in your heart? That's probably all of us here today. Do you need to repent of anything? Secondly, is there anyone you need to forgive for what they've done to you in the past? I'm not saying they deserve your forgiveness. I'm not saying they've apologized. I'm not saying they've earned it. But in light of what Jesus has done, is there anyone you need to forgive this morning? Thirdly, I think for many people, if you kind of lean more on the liberal side, this idea of horizontal redemption or reconciliation makes sense. But for you today, is it maybe not that kind of reconciliation you need, but vertical reconciliation? Do you need to be reconciled to God today? Do you need your sins to be forgiven? Do you need to be right, not just with one another, but with your creator? And lastly, how does your life and your home represent that Revelation 7 picture of what is to come? Is there anything even now that God is prompting you to do or to change or to become, to live in life with us? We're going to be a reconciled church and need to live reconciled lives. And I just ask you, Lord, in the hostility and complexity and depth of these issues, I just ask you to pour your grace out on us now, Lord God. Lord, we pray for the power of the gospel, which can do what none of us can do, to come and work in our hearts and our minds, and to change us, and to change our city, to become the people you want us to be. I pray for healing now, for grace to come upon us now. We thank you for the gospel that reconciles us to you, and we thank you for the gospel that reconciles us to one another. And I just pray even now, Holy Spirit, that you would just come upon us and take us by the hand as we go forward.